Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. What about you? Are you France? Yeah. Are you in France right now? Yeah, I'm in Paris right now. How's, how's everything going on there <laughs> it's good it's like 50 degrees so you know quite strange to be wearing like a sweater <laughs> not a coat but uh, i'm not complaining have you got family in paris is that why you're over there yeah yeah we moved here when i was like 13 years old so i like was here for six years went to french high school and everything and got my mom and dad and brother and other brother and sister here so yeah yeah, everyone's here. When was the last time you were back? Before now? It's been a year now because of this god dang virus <laughs> pandemic, you know? So, yeah, it's been a year since I've seen my family, which is, it's it's really nice to be back with them. I can imagine, yeah. Are you in uh, Edinburgh? Where, where are you about? Uh, I'm usually based in Glasgow, but I've done the same as you, actually, and I've come back home to Aberdeenshire for Christmas <sighs> at the moment. Cool, dude! I love Glasgow. I played there October of last year at the what is it called? The Thirteenth Note that like that oh, yeah, vegan yeah. restaurant with the basement. Really good food there on the uh, yeah, re- yeah. Oh, really good food. I mean, that's part of why I played there because they said I would get a meal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've been there for shows, and I quite, yeah, I quite often. Well, when things are open, I quite often go there for food, but. Yeah, yeah, it's a nice place, nice little venue. Kind of got a cool vibe to it. Quite yeah, and that and that whole little corner of. Glasgow, you, like you got that music shop right there, and then that like there's a that, that spot that's like a little bit bigger. What is that? What is the other venue that's like right there? But it, like I, I saw like Thurston Moore had just played there last time I was there. Oh, I know the one you mean. Um, yeah, it's like a cafe, big. Yeah. Anyway, that's gonna annoy me for the rest of the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's gl- when you're in New York normally, right? Yeah, that's where I'm at. Yeah, I've been there seven years. Does Glasgow look like quite an American city? Because I always kind of get that feeling from it, but I'm interested in the perspective from someone who's 
you know, living there normally, does it feel quite American in terms of the architecture and stuff, or is it quite different? I'd say it's pretty different. I mean, it's a lot more brick, you know, than I'm used to as a New Yorker. <laughs> American? I don't know. I wouldn't say. America's weird, too, because, like, most of America is heavily, heavily, heavily car culture, right? Which I'm not really about that. I don't really know. I've never actually been behind the wheel of a car. Have you always grown up in cities? Because you don't really need to drive, I guess, if you're in, in the center of things. Pretty pretty much, yeah. I mean, I'm from a small town in Oklahoma where everybody had a car, and I grew up looking out of car windows kind of deal. And then when I was 12, we moved to city of Paris, and so didn't really need much there. I could just get around on my feet and... That's how I like it. (laughs) And that's what I really liked about Glasgow. It seemed like a pretty walkable city. So, and there's really only like New York, Boston, kind of San Francisco and New Orleans that you can like walk around in America. Everywhere else is big car culture. So American's a weird word too. (laughs) (laughs) I like walking though, because you do a certain kind of thinking when you're walking from place to place, you kind of get that space to reflect upon things during the day. Oh man, you don't want to get me started on walking. I took a whole class on walking at university. It was called Walk This Way. And it had nothing to do with the Aerosmith song, but it was about changing the way you think about walking from point A to point B. And what's more is that I'm about to, well, we'll see. We'll see how 2021 plays out. But if everything goes according to plan, I'm about to walk like 2,000 miles. I'm trying to walk the Appalachian Trail. (laughs) Yeah, man. I just want to do it. I hear the calling. I got the calling in my heart, and I just want to follow it. Is that middle middle America? That is, you're uh, you're walking the Appalachian Mountains. So you're walking from Georgia to Maine. So it's pretty much all of Eastern America. <laughs> I think, did Bill Bryson write a book on this? That walk, walk yes, in the woods. Yeah. Walk in the woods. Yeah. I actually haven't read it, I but read everybody's ago, like, yeah. oh, you, everyone's like, you got to read it. Yeah. Is it, is it good? I enjoyed it at the time. Yeah. I remember reading it on holiday and um, I, f- okay. I feel like he's, his books are quite nice to read when you're traveling from place to place. He has quite a, a nice way of putting things. He does. He's quite colloquial, which I like, you know, I like reading like, like I could speak it out loud and it would sound like a normal person. Yeah, it, it feels like someone telling you a story in an airport or on a plane or something or on a bus. Right, right, exactly. What else did you study when you were in college then? If you did, you had one walk this way, what was the other, the rest of your timetable made up of? <laughs> well, actually, funnily enough, I tried to um, petition my university to give me a degree in New York. Um, because I took every class that had the words New York in it. So I took economics and governance of New York City, like New York City film, New York City culture, uh, history of the city of New York. I just kind of like became obsessed with like approaching one ubiquitous topic from every angle I could. But I I ended up majoring in economics because they wouldn't let me major in New York. But I did get my license to become a New York tour guide. So that, it all worked out. <laughs> you used to interview artists and stuff when you were in college as well, right? Like musicians. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I I've, I've, uh, have a lot more experience being on your side of the table because, yeah, I mean, I started a music blog my sophomore year just as a total excuse to talk to musicians. <laughs> and like, actually, it was a total lie. I was actually on my way to Montreal 
with a friend and there is a um I don't know if you know this solo artist named Alex Calder, no relation to the famous sculptor. I'm not familiar um, with him, no. But he used to be in Mac DeMarco's band Make Out Videotape. Oh, and did he play the drums in that band? Yes, exactly. So this is not Home Shake, who it was in Mac DeMarco's touring band, but the, the previous band he played drums in, and then he went off and started his own solo career, got signed to Capture Tracks, and then got caught up in some Me Too scandal, but this, so then he's like no longer a thing. But before all that, I was on my way to Montreal uh, just, just to like see what it was about. And I knew that Alex Calder was there and I knew he was like not a huge artist, but he had just got signed to Catcher Tracks and he had a bunch of songs out that I really, really liked. So I just Facebook messaged him and I was, or like his page or whatever. And was like, Hey man, like I write for a New York magazine and I would love to interview you, blah, blah, blah. And he responded like immediately being like, oh, absolutely. Yeah, actually, like there's a party tonight. You should come and like we could talk there or whatever. <laughs> and I was like, oh, my God, it's that easy. And then I was like, oh, my God, I have to start like a music magazine now or something to, <laughs> to, put, to, 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 to make this uh, real. I just totally lied to this guy. And so that's what happened. What was your kind of approach to interviewing artists? How did you kind of go about it? Oh, absolutely. Uh, definitely. Um, I looked up the 10 most common interview questions and I said I would, and I struck the, I, I made myself like a little rule list. And my first rule is that I couldn't ask any of these questions. Ma- that's so <laughs> I did that as well when I first started. Really? Oh, yeah, similar exactly. thing. I looked at the most common ones. Yeah. yeah. And I was like, okay, I'm not going to ask these because I know that these people are going to be asked this all the time and you're going to get a script and I'm trying to get to the person. And so, yeah, I mean, my approach was just like, it's hard because I would try to inject as much as myself into the beginning of the interview and really let them know where I was coming from and then start the interview like halfway through the conversation basically so that it was like we are it already seemed like we like were great friends and knew each other and I could kind of step back but like have them be responding to me as a person rather than just responding to the same old questions that they already get, you know, you know. Yeah, you want to try and get them into that headspace where they're not thinking about the fact it's an interview. Exactly, exactly. That it's just like a conversation between two normal people. And it's like, oh, wow, yeah, look at us. Here we are. Like we're in an airport lobby or something. <laughs> how long did you uh, How long did you do that for, the music blog? Uh, I did it for like four years, like a little bit uh, or three or four years. It was like by the end of my, I guess three years, because by the time I graduated from college, I had handed it off to somebody else. And I was like, okay, now it's my turn. Now it's my time. Now it's my time to go spread my wings and try to do something. So I started a band and that didn't work. And then I started a solo project and here we are talking about it (laughs) so is that music site still going but just someone else has kind of taken it over yeah it is you can still look it up it's rare candy because i am a huge pokemon nerd rarecandy.org um it's still going i mean it's like it's very different i mean the whole ethos of the of the site when it started was to talk about local new york city bands that or, I mean, it didn't have to be local, but it was really like bands that just seemed completely undiscovered. And one of the one of the unspoken rules was that they had to, well, actually, we spoke about it a lot, that they had to have less than 5,000 Facebook likes or something like that. Yeah, it was some kind of metric where like we just covered like the people that 
we felt were truly good. And also the other rule was no bad review. Like you don't just like talk to someone so you can shit on them, you know? <laughs> and also no rating system. I was like, I had a huge bone to pick with Pitchfork when I started a music blog. I kind of started it as like a fuck Pitchfork kind of deal. Like the whole idea of like a 6.7. It's like, are you kidding me? Like putting like a, why isn't a 6.8 or whatever, you know, or like, I was just like, this is so ridiculous. And so. It's so yeah, weird for I them was, though. Cause they're such well-written reviews a lot of the time. Yeah. Yeah. They really are. I mean, they get some really talented people. Yeah. And then sometimes it's really beautiful language, but I tend to disagree with everything, everything they say though. So <laughs> I don't really, I kind of stopped going there because it just made me angry. <laughs> I go there when I want to feel something though. Yeah, I can definitely feel some emotions when I go to Pitchfork. I do quite often go on their best new music, to be honest. There's always something worth kind of checking out on there. Something pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah, it is worth checking out. And it's also like you feel a little bit like you're going against the algorithm because so much of my music discovery these days is, you know, dictated by an algorithm of what's in my Discover Weekly or what have you. So, and I, I, I particularly like this time of year too because you'll go, I, I, a lot of times I, I don't really keep up on new music in the blogosphere it's really just like what spotify is feeding me so around this time of year i always go to like aquarium drunkard and gorilla versus bear and like these places i've had around my whole adult life and check out what their end of year like Bandcamp roundup is or whatever and always find some some really good stuff were you it sounds like you were quite involved though in the music community when you were kind of at college then oh absolutely i was the music guy i was the music guy for yeah, it was funny because like I was the music guy, but I wasn't in. I wasn't making any music because I just really wanted music to be happening. So I did the blog, but the blog quickly became more about the shows because we would do shows like twice or three times a month. Like I was just a madman because as soon as I realized what was possible, like that you could Facebook message a band that they would be down to play for very little money. That not that I was like trying to exploit them, I just didn't have any money, you know. And then that I had there was a whole group of people, i.e., college students, who wanted to see these shows, and like that there was like some readily available sound equipment because I went to a university that had some of that. So I was like, oh my gosh. And we're in New York, so everybody passes through here. So I just started to throw shows, so many shows, 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 shows. I was just throwing shows, organizing shows that became my total obsession of like just throwing the best show and like the best lineup and curating everything that I just didn't write any music. I mean, I was always playing music, but it just, my focus was there. And then I got even crazier when I like found this space at my school that was not being used. There was a old, it used to be a TV studio, like a student run TV studio that had been completely abandoned. And I was like, Oh my gosh. And I, just started putting like recording gear in there. Like I had a little bit, I had some friends who had a little bit and it was weird because I worked for the IT department. So I was like one of the only people that had access to this room. And I was like convinced that I was the only person that knew that it existed. It turns out I wasn't, but by the time someone figured out what was going on, we had put a drum kit in there. We had put all this stuff. And so then it was just like a matter of applying for a grant. And we got like $10,000 to start our student run recording studio. So then I was like running this recording studio slash the blog slash throwing shows. And that was my whole college experience. It was just like looking at like being super DIY and super music dude but not really putting myself out there and then after college i was like okay it's time to it's time to go 
it's time to do what I want to do now. What were the serial shows? The serial shows? Yeah, when you were at college. I heard about this. You heard about the serial show? Or are you just looking it up right now? Are you looking it up right now? I'm not looking it up right now. I heard about the serial (laughs) shows prior. (laughs) Well, there is this uh, one. A lot of times I'll just like overhear something and then base my whole life around it. Like the whole, I mean, the album title, We Share Similar Joy, is just something I overheard on a street. And I was like, oh my God, that's it. Boom, let's go. This is it. And so one time I over, I think it was a friend of mine who said, I was like, oh, oh, I asked him, I was like, if you were going to open up a venue, what would you call it? And he said, existential breakfast. And I was like, oh my God, I am obsessed with that. And I was like, well, the only logical thing to do now is throw a serial show. We have to throw a show where everybody is free to bring their own box of cereal, their favorite box of cereal. And for some reason, that's where I left it in my mind. And I was like, we'll see what happens. I don't know why I didn't expect everyone to be throwing cereal everywhere and for cereal to just be like all over this linoleum floor at the end of the night, like and like compacted dust because people had like with beer and it's really hard to mop up cereal. And <laughs> but that's what we did. It was one of the best shows I ever threw, but also one of the definitely the most difficult to clean up. It was crazy. There's so much Fruit Loops and Honey Bunches of Oats. Some good cereals got wasted that night. I felt bad about that. But a lot of people ate the cereal too, so I didn't feel too bad. But yeah, that's the story behind Existential Breakfast. What cereal did you bring? What's your go-to? Oh, well, I didn't really want to bring my favorite cereal because... I think I actually did, though. I brought Reese's Puffs. Reese's Puffs. I mean, it's not really a cereal. It's more like chocolate and peanut butter. <laughs> <laughs> like, I can't believe they get away with selling that to kids. <laughs> it's like Cookie Crisp, isn't it? It's just like yeah, basically yeah. cookies, but you just yeah. take some milk on it. Yeah. And you're like, what the heck? Like, how are people eating this for nutritional value <laughs> or my favorite is like it's real cookies or, or like it's real i don't know chocolate or whatever you're like why is that a selling point <laughs> like, you seem to have quite an affection for like sweet treats because wasn't your first punk band called hubba bubba after the gun? yes yeah oh man you did do your research that's awesome <laughs> that's really cool um yeah well to be honest i mean i had a trying to think of really the first 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 but the first i mean the, definitely the first like one on the internet is hubba bubba yeah the first band though gosh what we called uh so i was in a band even before i went to france in vermont in this like really uh it smells like it, was, it smelled like cat pee oh gosh what we called i think we were called ocm feedback Anyway, but yeah, uh, hubba bubba, that was great. I just love the sound of that word of those words together, hubba bubba. And I also love that candy. And also, yeah, rare candy. I guess I do have like a sweet thing going on. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, hubba bubba was great. So was that after college? Yeah. Hubba bubba actually was during college. college. Like that, yeah, it was, but I didn't, it wasn't something that I was like, incredibly serious about i wasn't like begging all my friends to come out to the shows it's just i needed something because i mean one thing about me is that i'm like always writing songs and they usually don't go anywhere and i'm totally fine with that but it's great to just have a little outlet so before hubba bubba i went by the name nico west and i only sang songs about fruit 
that was more of like an exercise than anything. And then it kind of became its own beast. I think it was a dare. I think I wrote a song about a banana. And then I just got, then I read a thing about how Sufjan had this project to write an album about every state. And I was like, I'm going to write a song about every fruit. And that just kind of became my obsession. And so I had in the end, like 37 fruit songs, I believe like every, pretty much every fruit you can think of, because always there'd be one guy who's like, well, you do a star fruit. And so I did have a star fruit song because there's a lot of those guys out there. <laughs> and I would just show up with an acoustic guitar, go up on stage and ask people to yell out a fruit. And then, you know, people be like strawberry. And I'd be like, uh, eat you in a chocolate fountain or whatever it was. And is it easier to write music when you set a parameter for yourself like that, where I'm just going to write absolutely. songs? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. That's one of the biggest pieces of advice. Whenever anyone asks me like, what's the best, what's the easiest way to write a song? I'd be to say to limit yourself to just like creatively put yourself in a box because everything starts to expand and everything starts to become easier. Once you close some of the roads that you can go down, then it just becomes, you're like, oh, I got this. Yeah. So that was like, that was a big lesson for sure. Did you set parameters for this record you just put up? Did you have kind of, you know, boundaries so that you could do that and you could kind of unify it around something? I did kind of, but this one was a little, I wanted it to be good <laughs> and i wanted it to not be about fruit or anything like that i wanted it to not so much be taken seriously but taken earnestly if that makes sense like i wanted it to be songs that were like the best introduction to me at this moment and well not at this moment really <laughs> because i'm in a totally different moment than i was but at that moment when i was writing it it was like i had just come out with the ep uh i'll love you forever bye and i had really found something that i felt like people had connected to and that i connected to and it was songs that i just like i love those first four songs i found you and joe fusco and whatever like i i still listen to them <laughs> it's embarrassing but i was like i love these songs i want to hear what's next and because <laughs> I, I mean, I talk to myself like I'm two different people, which is kind of crazy. But I was like, what's next? Like, let's hear what's next. You know, I mean, and, you kind of are a little bit because JW yeah. Francis isn't it, it actually does it help if it's you have not. a moniker and you can kind of separate it from yourself? Absolutely. I was just going to say that, like, the whole project itself is definitely a parameter in itself, like. I'm learning with everybody else what J.W. Francis is up to, even though, you know, like, which sounds so crazy to say they're going to put me in an institution or something. But, like, I also love going by J.W. Like, I love when people come up to me and they're like, J-Dubs! And I'm like, yeah, what up? Like, it's just super fun. And it's so much more easy for me to write songs and, like, there's that saying like the man who wears the mask is the most truthful of all or something like that, you know, where I just feel like I've found this awesome mask that I can write songs as and do whatever and still have so much more to myself than I'm going in a million different directions over here that no one knows about. But when I wrote the record, I was like, I want, I, I was like, I'm going to be very specific and very honest. Like I'm very happy in this moment. I had just moved in with my best friend in New York. I had a job and I was living where I wanted to be and everything felt 
right. Everything felt like a, like life was moving in the right direction. It wasn't a job that I like. It's the job that I have now. It's not the job that I like that I feel is like the end all be all. I feel like JW is that, but like, what is it you do? If you don't mind me asking, I'm a executive assistant to a Nobel Prize winning economist. Um, so it's kind of like that movie Devil Wears Prada. And I'm Anne Hathaway, <laughs> and he is Meryl Streep, except he's a lot nicer than that. Yeah, his name is Joseph Stiglitz, and he's he was my hero in college, and I just happened to fall into his lap. Eh, not like that, but... Um, so, did you write a lot of his stuff before you worked for him? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I was like, wow, someone who's like a mainstream economist like seems to only care about the actually important stuff, <laughs> which is inequality and climate change. And like, he's known for being the rebel in mainstream economics. He's known for saying things that most economists don't agree with. Like the simple fact that and it's like a fact that a lot of people in academia will completely disagree with, but that our economic systems are entirely determined by our political will and so often it's painted as like a math thing oh you don't understand you don't understand like the interest rate or the inflation or what all these things like or people who are like oh i'm socially liberal but fiscally conservative they're the they're the same thing <laughs> like, like our political like the economy like the economic system is completely determined by like what we expect it to be and so it's just kind of silly to to think otherwise but anyway i am completely diverging i completely forgot what the original question was <laughs> that's an interesting point though like what you're saying there about our economic systems being what we expect them to be mm -hmm. is that ever the same as a person because you kind of speak a little bit on the record about this idea of chasing wanting to be your best self and this mm -hmm. idea of chasing your dreams and yeah. I, I think you even asked that it's something like am i am i defined by my dreams or am i just my dreams or something yeah on, no on exactly well, that's that, what i'm is that a similar yeah. thing like are you kind of i think that's a to yeah i think you're really hitting the nail on the head i think so often we get like the um, our perception of something and what it really is confused um when when a lot of the times they actually are the same thing gosh i'm not really speaking too well but okay let me try to put this right our perception is the thing. And I'm like, oh, gosh, I don't know how to say this right. Um, it's all good. I just fumbled as well about I made the point. <laughs> I mean, you pretty much got it that are our dreams or like anything that, you, like whatever, Picasso said this, like anything that you can imagine is real. I don't want to, yeah, I don't want to get too messy with economics and stuff because I'm sure, I feel like, I, I, like, that my job doesn't know this, that I'm probably about to quit pretty soon. And uh, I highly doubt they're listening to this, so that's okay. But um, if, one of my fears is like that I quit this job and then like for some reason, like, I don't know, the economists come after me or something. I don't know. <laughs> like I kind of want to be done with the economics world after this. But, I mean, it's a cool world. It's they're, It's not cool. Um, uh, and that would be a cool but, idea for a music <laughs> video, you getting hunted down by the economists. <laughs> <laughs> that's another that's a great i've got a song coming out next year called make another record that i think that could actually work on i wanted to do like a chase scene so i'm like oh maybe economist could be the one yeah <laughs> <laughs> um but i'm actually i'm actually grappling a lot with that right now about like 
trying to be the best version of yourself, but it kind of like, I feel like that. I feel like I know so many people who are doing that and it's kind of killing them because they're not just like they're, they're so caught up with mental projections that are impossible to grapple with necessarily because they're not real. So they're just going down. There's kind of spiraling and wallowing uh, with these mental projections of who they should be. And they're missing out so much on what's right in front of them. So that's kind of what the next album is about. <laughs> it's like, it's about, um, it's more of a, I feel like this, this first album is more of a warm blanket of gratitude of love and definitely there's some self-doubt and questioning going on but the next one is full of that it's just like a gut punch of anxiety and wanting to get out and just wanting to be somewhere else which i hope people will you know after this year relate with somewhat (laughs) is it juxtaposed against that the same kind of warm tones and soundscape or are you kind of shifting the sonics in a different direction accordingly with that i have a philosophy that you need to do the same thing at least twice for it to stick so this record will have some of those same warm guitar tones and i and i just like the way lo-fi sounds i think that anything polished just sounds fake so it's definitely still got my mark on it but at the same time i was like when i when i was working on it with my friend producer Sahil who did the first record too I was like let's make this one if the last one was retro nostalgia warmth let's make this one a little more retro futuristic so like it's still got the nostalgia but it's like a nostalgia for the future that isn't there yet kind of idea if that makes any sense i rarely yeah. do but <laughs> it's more about what's evoked by what i say more than what is actually being said. i get what you say as well though, about having to do the same thing twice for it to stick because you've kind of you've put yeah. the, the foundations there for the kind of world that your music exists in on this first record and it's about just exactly. kind of solidifying that exactly and if i did something if i made a total left turn right now i feel like there wouldn't be enough i feel like i've just gathered everyone to the table right now and now it's time for me to serve dinner and i just gathered everyone at the table and i can't i can't give them some like electro pop thing whenever you know they've just got a taste of my warm biscuits or whatever i don't know you know (laughs) whatever the metaphor is it's like if i serve like cold goulash after I just served like a war. Well, actually, you know, you know, cold goulash can be good, but you know what I'm talking about, you know. Is it a different approach to songwriting than when you already have the, the kind of structures there of the sound? When I have the structures of the of the sound? Uh, in terms of like your sound, like you, like what was, we were saying about how you've established it on the first record, is it different when you yeah. kind of move on from that and you already have the, the parameters there in a more solidified sense? It's, it gets a lot easier. I mean, I'll let you in on a secret. Well, I don't know if I should actually. I don't know. My publisher might actually not. Well, my publisher probably is not going to listen to this. Yet. I mean, no offense, but <laughs> <laughs> um, in all honesty, I've got the next, I've got my first, well, this could just totally change also, but I finished writing my first seven albums before the Whoa. first one came out. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh and I, I, I'm really trying, I'm so bad at keeping secrets. I'm really trying not to say this because I think that's just, I think it's a big turnoff. Like if I told people that I had seven albums of music, um, it they'd could either change be, as well. 
It, and it, I know it's going to change. I already know it's going to change. I've already like rewritten. There, there's like five songs on each album that are a core and can, like will never change. But those other five, I've like already thrown out and brought in new ones like twice. And so I know it'll change. But it was so easy as soon as I understood. As soon as I wrote the first three, I was like, I kind of understood the arc that I was telling. And then I was like, let me just continue this story to its end. And then after, after I'm putting down the guitar after seven, I mean, I'll definitely, I just got, I just got to go to others. I just got to go to something else. I was like, I'm going to, I could draw, I could write a 30 album. I mean, I think Paul McCartney just released his 28th. I think this is his 28th solo album or something. I might be totally wrong, but good album as well. I've heard, I really want to dig into it because I love McCartney one and I love McCartney two and they're both so strange and weird. And McCartney one, arguably the first bedroom pop album, like period. Yeah. I hadn't thought about that before actually. Yeah. I mean, there's some songs on there like Valentine's day. They're just so weird and out there and so lo-fi and so critically panned at the time it came out like it's got all the markings of a bedroom pop album mccartney too so weird temporary secretary like what the heck like just so experimental so i'm hoping i, I think kind he, of he played that live recently though didn't he or not yeah. too long ago like a year ago yeah 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 he did yeah so cool i'm kind of i was i'm a little worried whenever i see an old person no offense to paul mccartney whenever i see an old person put out an album though I'm kind of scared for them (laughs) because it's honestly always so safe and disappointing (laughs) or like, like it's so safe and also like not why we originally fell in love with the artist. Like actually I did like rough and rowdy ways. Good album. Yeah. Yeah. Good album. But at the same time, I'm like, why doesn't he just give us what we want, which is Bob Dylan and a guitar and a like a crappy microphone. And just make it sound like the early 60s. Like everybody would just eat that up, like something really raw and like a little bad, but like vulnerable. But instead, it's like very polished. I I like it. I like the songwriting and everything like that. But I always get caught up with the form or like with the the sonic trappings, which I feel like is kind of obvious with my music because it's very, I don't want to say unique, but like the sonic trappings are very bad or like um particular (laughs) you know maybe dylan feeds into what we were saying about this idea of the projected self maybe he's trying to get away from that like what people think he should be yeah he is a very very interesting guy i mean i remember when they awarded him the nobel prize and he was so weird about it (laughs) he was speaking about like moby dick and stuff wasn't he oh well the speech that he eventually made was cool but like he you know he like ghosted them for like three months and then finally like that you don't get the prize unless you come to the ceremony so he didn't get the prize for like three months and then he went to geneva but like was wearing like a black hoodie and only agreed to do it if there was no audience and like you have to read a speech to get the thing but he read the speech like two people and then it got published on their website but i in a sense like totally get it because getting the nobel prize for like an artist for an for an economist all it does is raises your speaking fee but (laughs) for uh an artist it's like you are being given a lifetime achievement award or something. And you're like, wait a minute, I'm not done. (laughs) You know, like I'm still here. Like you just don't, I I don't know. The more time I stick it out and I mean, 
what am I saying? I, I just released my first album. I'm talking like <laughs> I've been here for my decades long career. Um, it's like, you kind of don't want any reason to rest on your laurels. Like you don't want any, you don't want to be given like a single inch because it feels like an invitation to go away <laughs> and die. And so you kind of like, at least for me, I kind of want like the struggle, you know, like I hope the second, I oh gosh, this, I'm probably going to jinx myself right now saying this out loud, but I hope the second album flops. <laughs> it's a complete dud so that, you know, the third album, I'm just, I, I think really the third album is where it's going to all break loose anyway. So if the third album doesn't break, then I'm just, I don't know. I've got four, five, six, seven, but <laughs> it'll be less of a happy camper, but you know. You should write this down. I remember reading about Interpol's guitarist mapped out like the first five records before the band, like had even put out the first one. Like he mapped out what he thought their career trajectory was going to be and pretty much oh. got it spot on. He did? Oh, let me let me Google it. What, Matt Dillard, Interpol? I remember listening to a podcast where the mother was speaking about it, and I, th- I think he kind of mapped that, like, the trajectory of where they would go, possibly even with one of the band members leaving, I'm not sure. Wow, that's really funny. <laughs> oh, whenever I search Interpol, it's like... Police, police organization. <laughs> it's all these police stuff. <laughs> yeah, I should definitely do that. Well, I've, I, I journal religiously, so there's definitely plenty of documentation of of my plans but but yeah we'll see i mean i didn't really plan for this thing to happen so i don't i don't really have plans for the world does this idea though of like planning ahead you know so many records does it almost tie into the well i know that the moniker started out as a fantasy writer thing and this idea of world building is it kind of coming from the same place as that this idea of constructing a world in which all these records take place and kind of seeing if you're if you're planning them all out now you can see how they interlock like exactly. Years in advance, yeah. Exactly. I want. I, I. I'm such a listener first and a creator second that like I have gone through bands' discographies and like patch whatever together. You know, I was a complete Beatle maniac and did all the Paul was dead research. I mean, obviously, I'm not that <laughs> crazy, but like, like I love all the breadcrumbs. I love. You know, I love all those things because that is me. I'm a super fan. I, you know, obsessively read people's Wikipedia and follow all the links and, you know, I'm that dude. So definitely this has given me a chance to really step back and be like, okay, because I'm also not just a musician. (laughs) You know, I'm trying to, I still want to write. And so here's a surprise is that I wrote a book of poetry to go along with the first album. It's very small. It's 40 pages, but the pages are smaller than my palm. I wanted to make a tiny book that could fit into your pocket. I also wanted to make a book that costs like $10 or less. So I made this tiny book and then I asked my dad who does illustrations to, if he could illustrate it. And he said, yes. So me and my dad made this book that, is going to share the same name as this first album. We share a similar joy. And I think I'm going to release it for Valentine's day. Cause we just got the first copy of it and it looks good and ready to go. So going to try and get it out for Valentine's day and be like, okay, from now on, I'm putting out a piece of writing to go along with the albums, just like for my, so I don't go crazy. <laughs> I have something to work on since I've done all the music work and 
because it's something I wanted to do for a long, long time. So the next one, Wonder Kid, is the name of the second album. First, I wanted to do a comic book, but those take a long time. <laughs> so I'm doing a, I'm doing like a, a book of short stories that all have the same narrator of like this. It's kind of exactly what we've been talking about. Someone who is trying to be the best version of themselves and it's killing them. So they go, they get introduced to this guy named John and John basically says like, have you ever heard of the door in your head? (laughs) And it becomes kind of like a Willy Wonka esque, like, or like almost like Dante Inferno going down like these levels into yourself. And so, and it's kind of based off the Phantom Tollbooth. I don't know if you know that book, but that's one of my favorite favorite books it's a children's book is this but a, a book of short stories exactly yeah well Phantom, is this the one with the sun where there's like an orchestra plays and the sun comes up or am i thinking of a different one no i think you're exactly right i think that's exactly right yeah exactly it's like fantastical kind of stuff like that that's such a cool piece of imagery like the idea of an orchestra right? playing as the sun rises right and that's all i want is i just want good images <laughs> that's all i just want to write like good imagery and with characters that are believable and relatable and i'm like i think i can do that so i'm gonna try and yeah that's the and then the third one is i'm kind of spilling all the beans but the third one is called dream house i've always been really interested scared fascinated by my own dreams because i tend to remember all of them so the third one is just going to be like a book of all my of all the dreams I've ever written down. <laughs> Do you write your dreams down in the journal? Oh, yes, I must. What was the last dream you wrote down? The last dream I wrote down was quite interesting. And I think it actually, it's not going to go into the canon of dreams that have changed my life, which there is a small canon of dreams that have really changed my life. This one is more of a reassuring that I'm doing the right thing because I was... In the dream, I was in Colorado and I was playing at Red Rocks Amphitheater. Never been there. Never. I don't, oh, I've been to Colorado, but I've never been to Red Rocks. It's a beautiful amphitheater. But I was walking towards the stage and I was meant to be playing. And But I'm walking in slow motion and I'm walking in the crowd and I'm walking to the stage. This is like Corona's over or whatever because no one's wearing masks or socially distance. And... I'm walking in slow motion and people are kind of like, come on, like, come on, get up there, go, go up on stage. And I am like smiling and like, uh, uh, like this is part of the experience, like the anticipation, like you need silence before the boom. And so I was like, just, I just kept walking in slow motion. And then when I, and then I looked up on stage and I, my acoustic guitar was completely broken into pieces and i was like huh in my mind for some reason in the there's like dream logic is so interesting to me in dream logic i was like that's what happened last time i played there and whenever i hold up my broken guitar and say this is what happened when i played here last time people are gonna laugh and be like oh yeah he's gonna rock tonight but everyone was kind of like come on man hurry up that is exactly how i'm feeling about playing shows in 2021 is I'm in no rush. I'm feeling a little bit of, not a lot of pressure from like the label or whatever, but there's definitely, I mean, everyone's like, we can't wait to see you live. And I'm like, I can't wait to play live. But I don't feel the rush. I want it to, I don't want people to feel like they are guinea pigs in some experiment of like, is this safe? It, will someone get sick from this? I want to have 
complete assurance that no one is going to be sick because of this, or no one's going to like spread this disease that we still have only just begun to get vaccinated for. And there's going to be this weird period in 2021 where some people are like, yes, like come out to my show. It's super safe. I promise like blah, blah, blah. But it's weird. It's going to be weird vibes because some people are not going to be totally comfortable and that's totally justified. And I just don't want to be in a position where I'm begging people to gather on my behalf when I don't have full confidence that I'm not asking them to walk into some kind of death trap, even though it's, that's a little bit dramatic. But that's part of why I want to go on a walk <laughs> while I wait for the vibes to, to, to get good and for it to be totally good and safe and people to be acclimated back to going to shows because even when it is safe, I feel like there's still going to be some trauma left over from this year of avoiding crowds and, you know, so I'd rather, I'd rather take my time and make sure that everyone feels safe and that I feel good and safe. And so I'm probably not going to play until the fall, which I feel like by then they will have things figured out. Hopefully. I mean, I've got a plan B just in case, but you know, I, that's, so that was what that dream was. <laughs> <laughs> so you're going to do the walk in like the spring and the summer and then yeah. play in the fall, yeah? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking. And in the meantime, while I'm out there, the music's going to be coming out or like I've already turned in the second album. So they're going to be dropping it on my behalf and hopefully it resonates with people. And yeah, I'd like to tour... I'd like to tour the first two albums at the same time because I don't, I didn't really get a chance to tour the first album. And I just like to start off with a lot of material to play. So I'm not playing like 30 minute shows. I'm playing like at least an hour. So people can get their money's worth. (laughs) (laughs) Do you have an idea for anything else you want to achieve on this walk through the Appalachian Trail? Do you have an idea for other things you kind of want to think about and achieve, or is it, are you just going out there to walk? I have a lot of reasons to go out there. The main reason is just to walk, but behind that, there are a lot of a little more philosophical <laughs> reasons. One thing is that this year I picked up the practice of meditating, which is awesome. And I highly recommend it to everybody I see and meet and speak to is that it's just crazy that I wasn't doing this before, that everybody doesn't do this twice a day. Like, it's, it's I, I can't speak highly enough of it. And because it's like the benefits of it are immeasurable. I can't even like express how much better I feel doing this for like 15 minutes, like twice a day. And one of the things I've realized doing this is that there's a lot kicking around in my subconscious <laughs> and a lot of it is like things i've seen on my phone or things i've like seen in tv or like just media and what i mean when i say that is like i'll be sitting there with my eyes closed just like concentrating on my breath and then all of a sudden i'll get like an ad in my brain or like i'll get or i'll see like something i saw on instagram that day or like uh, these things will just pop up while i'm just kind of zoning out and i'm like oh my gosh everything that you consume is something you put in your body everything you see goes in your body everything like when, when you're listening to music it's in, it's entering in your body and so like i had never really thought about that or like realized that i was like you know what would be really good for me probably would extend my life for years like i will have again a measurable benefits that i can't even fathom 
is walking for four months. It's like, if I, like, I would love to put all of that into my subconscious and have that be nurturing my just every day rather than the constant flood of, you know, distraction that I get and people trying to sell me things. I'd rather just like have my life be really simple <laughs> and just be th- like thinking about what I'm going to eat that day and, and how am I going to keep going and just do that. So that's one reason <laughs> why I wanted to walk or why I want to do this. The other is like whenever I have an idea and it seems crazy and other people are like, this seems kind of crazy. I know from experience that I should do it immediately. (laughs) Or like if people are like, wow, yeah, that's kind of crazy. Or like, wow, oh my gosh. Or like if you get, if you tell people you're going to do something and they respond in that kind of way, do it, do it, do it immediately. And the most immediately I can do it is in the spring because it's not, you don't want to really walk right now. So do people say that about this project? Uh, about JW? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Well, my parents are different because they're young. They had me when they were 19. And so they're kind of more like my friends. And so they're like, this is, they were like, yeah, this is awesome. Like, this is amazing. Do you do that? You know, but my boss is kind of like, Oh, you're doing music. Okay. Like (laughs) he actually has no idea. Actually, I've not told him my stage name or he doesn't know anything. He doesn't know I'm on a label or does he come from quite an academic background though? Oh, very, very much so. Yeah. So he's kind of like, Oh yeah. The arts, those things need patrons. (laughs) (laughs) It's just a different lifestyle, I guess, isn't it? Yeah. It's just like a different, it's just a different, whole different vibe it can be interesting to speak to people like that though they can kind of make you think about things in a slightly different way similar to earlier on you know, i know you were speaking about the dream perspective being mm-hmm. this interesting kind of different thing people can mm-hmm. say things that can kind of spark a different perspective within you so it's, it's cool to talk to these people as well even if they maybe share interesting opinions on some stuff absolutely i mean people like that make you realize well the good thing is is i've actually never even when i was throwing shows all the time and, and writing about bands, interviewing bands, whatever. And even when I could, I mean, it's an exciting moment when you can perceive a scene. When someone says like, what's the scene like in New York? I'm like, you know, which one? There's like 3000 of them. But whenever you see, whenever you're like, oh my God, like this person is friends with this person and that person is in this band, whatever, whenever you perceive a scene, you're like, wow, this is so exciting. This is like, I'm here and this is happening now and it's it's so cool but that's so rare that that happens and also i never really have felt funnily enough i've never felt a part of a scene i've witnessed scenes i guess i am a part of a scene since like sahil really saw it's sahil like sahil works with a few other different artists and we all are friends with each other and will help promote each other's music or whatever, but we're not on, I think I might be the only one that's like actually on a label or whatever. I've never felt a part of a scene. And I think that's been a huge benefit to me because I'm not like, and I don't even consider myself like the, some bastion of like the bedroom pop sound, the lo-fi sound or whatever, like, People definitely hit me up and they're like, what's your pedal or whatever. But there's less expectation when you're not on a scene. Well, there's no expectation, really. There's no expectation. You're just you. You're just you. And and you're not caught up in this whole vibe because that's that's the point I was going to make was that like whenever you talk to people who are just completely outside of 
music in general, <laughs> like in an academic world, you realize that what you are going through is just one of many vibes. <laughs> and it's just like, it's not something to get caught up into. You, it's really easy to get bogged down when really you should be hovering above everything. Did being, are you st- you're still a walking tour guide, right? Yeah. I mean, I haven't given a tour since February because uh, yeah, of the whole thing. And a lot of people have been like, oh, you should do virtual tours. But I'm like, hmm. Not really the same. It's not the same at all. It's like phone sex. I mean, it just doesn't work. You know, <laughs> <laughs> it's like, come on now. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna just tease people. I can't. And I also, my the whole point. My, I try to give tours in a different way, in a sense like it's really about where we are then in the moment. In a sense like I like to lead people watching tours where we're just there to watch people <laughs> and be like, this is New York, baby, and like, what are we gonna see today? And it's just more about being excited and being there. So it just doesn't work on, you know, if I'm showing you Google Maps. Does that change your perspective of the say? Oh, being a tour guide absolutely, completely changed my perspective of the city because I became completely obsessed with like, I wanted to be able to walk down one block of New York, just one block. I was like, I knew that already that was so ambitious, but I wanted to be able to walk down a block of New York and be able to tell you everything about everything you were looking at and that became a very exciting project for me to be like okay this manhole when was it made where was it made where was the material source from this building who lives there right now and where was the building uh, or when was the building constructed and what were the politics behind the construction of the building in this particular spot and like that was super exciting. I ended up making it more... I was working on a series called um, like a, a micro-history series. I don't know if you know the, you know the concept of micro-history. Um, no, no, could you... Very, very simple. I mean, it's, it's stupid. It's just looking at history through one single thing. So the most famous example is that book called Cod. And it's about the history of the world through... It's, it's just, just about the history of Cod, uh, the fish. Um, and it kind of tells a grander narrative through telling this very, just looking, just looking at the history of COD and how it's moved around the world. Like a character so, in a film almost. Yeah. Like a character in a film and you're looking at just at, you, you've got a microscope on one small thing and it tells you a lot about a much bigger thing. And so I was trying to do the, this little micro history series looking at the history of New York through the history of manhole covers. So I was looking at manhole. I was, I was just going to tell you, just talk about the history of manhole covers in New York. And then I wanted to have another one on bricks, actually the history of brick in New York city. I mean, bricks an interesting one. Cause you can tell so much from a material, like where it's come from in the world and at what period. In exactly. History. Exactly. And also how it's, significance and the value associated with it has it has completely flipped particularly in new york it's very interesting like if you have an apartment with exposed brick in new york today the average asking price of the rent raises by 200 dollars with the inclusion of exposed brick on the listing that's a funny fact <laughs> it's on average 200 dollars more to have exposed brick in your apartment whereas 100 years ago having exposed brick was not a sign of <laughs> chicness or whatever. It did not raise the asking price of your apartment. It actually obviously lowered it. Does New York have like an affinity for the past? 
in that way. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, I think they don't have it as bad as Paris does. I mean, talk about a city who's in love with the past. Like, <laughs> this place cannot let it go. Like, <laughs> New York is kind of also prides itself on its creative destruction of itself. That's one of the aspects that make it so exciting is that they love to tear things down and build it up new. And it's happened a lot. I mean, there's a great quote from Joseph Campbell that you can tell a society's priorities by looking at its tallest building. So if you look at New York throughout the entire, almost the entirety of the 19th century up until 1883, the tallest structure was a church. Not that I would agree with Joseph Campbell that actually the church was even New York's main priority. It was pretty much always commerce. But 1883 happens, the Brooklyn Bridge becomes the highest building. And then soon after that, skyscrapers start topping, popping up and it's just one after the other. It becomes, you know, the, I mean, the, the, first, the first skyscraper in New York was called the Cathedral of Commerce. <laughs> so, which should tell you something about the priorities of that place. But <laughs> Yeah. Where about do you stay in New York now? Now I'm in, I've moved around a lot. I like to... I'm kind of nomadic. I like, I don't really like to stay in one place. I like to taste it all. So right now I'm in Gowanus, which is traditionally known for its very stinky canal where mobsters used to throw bodies and it used to be used by tanneries in the 19th century. So it was just always foul stenched, but it's now a little hip neighborhood in Brooklyn, you know, and it's very nice. It's like right next to Park Slope and Prospect Park. I love, I love parks and it's right up, Below, right above Industry City, which is like a very strange industrial neighborhood. I also love industrial neighborhoods because eh, there's just something historic and weird, but also like in, in, very exciting about, you know, industrial production. But yeah, I've been, I've lived there. I lived in Bushwick before that, which is like the classic hipster neighborhood for the past five, 10 years. Is that kind of what the village used to be? Right. So there's a joke that the village follows the L train and the L train just goes east to west. And so the village is in Manhattan. And if you take the L train, one stop out of the village, you go to Williamsburg, which used to be cool. Now very much not cool. Then uh, if you keep going out, you get to like Bushwick, Ridgewood. I studied a lot uh, I mean, I don't, yeah, a lot of my study in school is about gentrification. So it's definitely something that I don't try to speak too lightly of because it really is displacement of, you know, long-term residents and people living uh, where they're at. But it's it's just kind of how New York works. Have you noticed that everywhere you live? Where, was it Oklahoma you said you were before? Oklahoma, yeah. Um, Oklahoma... Not so much dealing with gentrification because no one really wants to go there. <laughs> they would, it's something, I mean, like gentrification is like a hard thing to talk about with people from Oklahoma because they like kind of like fundamentally don't understand the concept of like being mad at people moving to your neighborhood and raising the prices because like, <laughs> also because most people are homeowners. So it would like benefit them if the prices went up in their neighborhood. Whereas like a place like New York, most people are renters. So. But definitely I travel a lot and it's a phenomenon I see everywhere I go, you know. It just sucks that it's like 
it's like the quote unquote artists and hipsters and whatever who are like leading the charge in this. And they're probably also some of like the most liberal, socially conscious people. So it's this really strange juxtaposition. Yeah. It's a, it's a very, cro- a very weird intersection where a lot of people get really uncomfortable. When was the last time you were in Oklahoma? Last time I was in Oklahoma, I was supposed to be there for Thanksgiving, but I didn't want to endanger my grandma's life. So I didn't go back. Um, it would have been last Thanksgiving, so a, a little over a year ago. And it was really special because it was also my parents' 25th anniversary. And they had, we, we hadn't, like all of my intermediate family hadn't been back to Oklahoma for like a decade. So I go back every year to be with my grandma and for Thanksgiving. As I'll probably go there before walking the trail just to, I uh, just got to spend some Check time in. with her. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's one of the things I feel really bad for. I mean, there's a lot of people to feel bad for this year, but definitely one of the ones that is not super in the national discourse in the U.S. is just the elderly. I mean, obviously they're dying, but like the ones that aren't are just so lonely and isolated. And I just like feel so bad for them because there's not a lot we can do because we have to stay away from them, <laughs> you know? So it's like... It's fascinating the guy in power was 75 years old and he can't even look up for the elderly. Yeah, I know. I know. It's... Yeah, it makes me sick how they've been treated this year. Like this whole... I mean, honestly, the whole this whole thing, I was really... I wasn't as scared of the disease. Like the disease didn't attack. It doesn't attack your central nervous system. It doesn't make you like have crazy, you know, fits of seizure. And most people who I'm not, I'm not at all saying that, and no one should be afraid of it. It's definitely something to be afraid of. Obviously what I'm saying is that my biggest fear wasn't the disease itself, but the handling of it um, and how governments were going to react to a global pandemic. And, you know, it was so clumsy and it was so, Like, I mean, a lot of East Asian countries, like, you know, had it on lock and Australia and New Zealand, like, thank God for them. But like, gosh, it was just like so hard to watch. I think America's quite a different country as well, though. You don't have that same obedience that maybe you do in some of those other countries. Like, it's very much about freedom and that sort of thing. So it's difficult to kind of lock it down in the same way. And my worry there is that the problems we're going to be facing, I mean, there's a lot of people who feel like 2020 is kind of the ribbon cutting (laughs) to our new reality, which might just be like global challenge after global challenge. Like every year might be like 2020 going forward, (laughs) you know? Which is I mean, it scary. can well be when you look at global warming and this sort of thing. I mean, that's what this pandemic's come from, is going into these, you know, yeah. like we were saying, gentrification, building into these places and just... Yeah. yeah, exactly. And I mean, the one that's looming right now is the economic crisis, because if a lot of these... I mean, a lot of countries are really close to defaulting on their debt, and if they're allowed to default on their debt, then it could set off a big domino effect of basically a lot of money disappearing from the system which could just be disastrous yeah be a total catastrophe like we could go from dealing with this pandemic to uh, economic total depression i mean we're already in a depression but like it could be like a very very bad depression (laughs) and my worry even though uh, you know my worry is that the chinese model of running a country becomes this sounds like super anti China, pro-America. I'm not saying that at all. I don't think the American model is the way to run a country either because we would have no more Earth if we did it that way. But It's too unregulated. Yeah, it's too unregulated. But my worry is that the Chinese model of running a country 
people are just like, you know what they are doing? Like there, it's the only way to face a global challenge is to have like a, like centralized authority that is an autocracy. And I'm like, Oh gosh. Oh man. Like that brings <laughs> that would, a whole lot of problems of its own. Uh, yeah, exactly. I'm like, Oh man, that would just suck. And then like America is really like what it always was, which is an experiment. And it's like, well that failed, but, <laughs> <laughs> but I'm also from the Midwest, which means I'm optimistic. Um, so I have a lot of optimism and a lot of hope. I think, I mean, speaking of the mid, the Midwest. Yeah. What do you remember about performing the song Sticky Situation on stage? What? Wait, how did you find that? Wait, where did you find that? I don't don't even know where that is. Wait, if I, what what do I need to search on Google to find that? I don't don't know where I found that. I've, I've got my ways. I found it somewhere, but. (laughs) Sticky Situation, man, that was my jam. I, well, it wasn't my jam. I just like. It was a song that I sang on stage. <laughs> I mean, I was a super theatrical little kid in Oklahoma. I was like, as soon as I figured out that there was like a community theater, I would like audition for everything I could because I was like, this is awesome. I love performing. I love making people smile. And I think that's like what brings me joy. And so sticky situation. Gosh, I was playing the part of Bubblegum Bart. I remember. I was the villain and I was super excited to be the villain because I was, because it was, it was, I was just going to be like the goofy villain. Yeah. I remember sticky, oh man, sticky, sticky (laughs) situation. Uh I think it was something, I think it was kind of based off of war. What is it good for? And I was, I think it was based (laughs) off that song. Did you do a lot of theater and stuff growing up? Yeah, I did. I mean, when we got to France, I didn't because I didn't speak French. (laughs) And so (laughs) I had to get over that first. Yeah, I had to go. It was a sink or swim situation. It was like, I did a year of international school and then went to the public system. And it was like, well, you got to do it. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, I definitely did. I love, I love acting. I think, after this whole music thing, I would love to make films and then eventually be in them. I think that'd be super fun. So are your, all your kind of wider family still based out in Oklahoma? Like you're saying your grandmother's yeah. Th- yeah. Yeah. Everybody's in Oklahoma, just my mom and dad. And yeah, yeah. Brothers, sisters are here. We're the weird ones in the family that like, we're like, we don't, I guess we, we don't belong in Oklahoma. <laughs> we're going to go away. <laughs> so we're in France. Not that we like to be, I mean, I guess, yeah, I don't know if we really belong in France either, but, you know, <laughs> they got baguette and they can drink anywhere, so that's cool. <laughs> the first two tracks in the record are kind of a little bit about Oklahoma, or they're about your grandma. Yeah. Yeah, they're kind of exactly. Yeah, just because I love her so much. She's just, like, the perfect... I just, like, if I think about my relationships with other people, my relationship with my grandma is probably the most perfect relationship I have, and just in the sense, like, it's total unconditional love both ways. I mean... I also feel that way about my mom and my dad and my other family, but like, you know, grandma's like, they don't have any burden of raising you really. Like they don't, they're not the ones that have to teach you what's right and wrong or like discipline you or whatever. So she's just like only ever, you know, given me what I wanted. (laughs) (laughs) And I've only ever given her what she wanted, which is just like to be there with me. I think there's a line in the song. It's like, uh, all she wanted, or ah, uh, frick! I have to look at the own lyrics to my song. What is it? 
You know what I'm talking about? Is that the one? Yeah. Uh, you speak about the, Connor every week as well and stuff, right? Yeah, Connor every week. Oh, my God. I can actually look this up. This is so cool. Oh, I know she only wants me to. <laughs> so funny. <laughs> I know she only wants me to be happy and include her too. And, like, that's awesome. I feel like there's so many other people in this world that want so much more from you than that. When really, it should just be that. All they should want is for you to be happy and maybe include them. My grandma does want me to include her, but that's all that everybody should want for each other. And instead, you know, there's a lot of other things they want. (laughs) But that's okay. But yeah, so she's just like the perfect perfect relationship is it helpful to keep tied to home in that way you know when new york is so fast-paced and it is it's yeah. kind of a guess the antithesis in some ways about what you're speaking about there and that's all mm. you should want from people new york's about everyone kind of i mean again you speak about the dreams everyone's kind of got something they're aiming toward and trying to get yeah i, th- I think so i think i am blessed in the sense that i tend to see the best in people there's people who are that i am friends with and i'm friends with other people too and those friends don't like each other because they see the they see the bad things, and I just don't tend to see those things. So you know, if the unthinkable happened and everyone I know outside of New York vanished, I would obviously be very sad. <laughs> I would obviously be very very sad. But I uh, I can keep going. <laughs> God, that sounds so horrible. You all can die, and I will be fine. That's not what I'm saying. I'm trying to say like I just got that good brain chemistry or something. I'm just like probably one of the happiest people I know. And it's really funny. I think, I just kind of think everything is really hilarious. I think that's my problem or my gift. (laughs) It's just like, I think that everything is really funny. So definitely there are a lot of people in New York who you talk to them and you're like, whoa, you don't even see me. All you, you don't even see me. You're just saying like, what do you think I can do for you or whatever? And it's so transparent. But I'm so playful. <laughs> I like to play with those people uh, and just kind of poke them and test them, or whatever. So, yeah, it doesn't really get to me. Like a lot of people. Can you ever get dark. through to them? Can you ever kind of unlock that side of them that is actually just a person yeah. and isn't looking for that? Yeah. 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 It's, it's not too hard. You just got to, you just got to level with them. You just got to be real with them. And there's a lot of people on the internet that I haven't met yet, that I haven't got to level with yet because we haven't met in real life. And I can, and I know that they just, they just want me to share their thing on my Instagram story or something like that. It doesn't bother me. I totally get it. You know, I mean, I can't afford to promote every post I make or whatever, like this, it's stacked against you. Definitely. In terms of getting yourself out there, and sometimes you got to be a little spammy. I don't. Wanna, I was going to say slut, but you know what I mean, like spammy. You know, how I don't know. What, I, there's a better word, but you got to do it sometimes. There's just no way around it, and I totally understand that, and I do it myself too. But you got to play the game to an extent. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's just the way you got to recognize the way things are. All those words are capitalized. You know, the way things are, but and work within what you got and constantly criticize okay wait i read a quote the other day that was really a good um encapsulation of the way you should act which is you know be unrelentlessly kind to people and ruthlessly critical of systems and so whenever you see someone acting a certain way that you don't understand or don't agree with it's probably has not a lot to do with 
them as a person, but rather the system that they've grown up in or, or what, or that they have to operate in. And so for musicians having to promote their music, it can be super cringy. It can be super, super, super cringy and lame and not at all what you want to be doing because you're just trying to write cool tunes, but that's just the system, baby. Yeah. We're a product of the environment and the time that we were born into. Right. Exactly. What you could do, though, is you just get people to promote it for you. Because I saw a few things on your Instagram where, I think, did your mom and dad make you like a hat with your name on it? Yeah, yeah, and, they did, yeah. And uh, someone gave you like a customized turtleneck as well? Yeah, yeah, they did. I got that. Yeah, that was amazing. And I, those things, and that's the best That's the best part. It's like I never asked for those things. And I never would, you know, hit someone up and be like, hey, can you make me a turtleneck? Like, Someone just made that because they were feeling some kind of way. So that's what I'm trying to do is make people feel some kind of way, but on their own terms, on their own, you know, I don't want to shove my stuff down people's throats. (laughs) I want them to shove it down their throat of their own will. (laughs) I mean, it's interesting what we've been speaking about. Do you feel that life experiences and musical experiences are more important to what it is you're doing and your songwriting and your creativity? Because we've spoken a lot about kind of both and the both the record itself, but also the kind of experiences that surround it have led to its its formation. Absolutely, I think the music is just like the tip of the iceberg. <laughs> you know, like it sounds super corny, but like, yeah, I think the music is just a entryway into everything else. And I mean, for me personally, music is just me. It just happens to be the way that I can get to my ideal life situation which is traveling all the time and and yeah touring and playing on stages everywhere because honestly there's two places that i felt the most comfortable in life which is this on a stage or on the trail <laughs> like those are the places i feel like i belong and i know exactly what i'm doing and it's very simple um so i just want to do that all the time and i can't get paid to walk on the trail so I might as well get paid to be on a stage if if i can yeah, that'd be cool. You gonna bring your guitar with you on the trail when you go back out in the spring or the summer? Gosh, I've thought about it a lot because I rarely am without it. Um, it's like another limb, and I just don't think logistically I'm gonna be able to have one. I mean, even the tiny ones—they're just like it's just kind of cumbersome to. I guess I could try and tie it to my backpack, but there's a lot of things you need to bring out into the woods to survive <laughs> you know comfortably so i'm trying to stay light is she still called lisa oh my gosh yeah you really do know all the stuff yeah well the 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 yellow one is called lisa named after lisa simpson because of the yellow my favorite yeah and also just my favorite simpson i wouldn't bring lisa i wouldn't bring an electric definitely i would have to bring i've got this little guy that i actually never named i pretty much named all my guitar guitars but this one I feel disrespectful naming it because it seems like it's got its own thing going on. And I've also, I got it in Mexico city in 2016 for the equivalent of $15 and it's lasted for four years beautifully. And I've written so much music on it and everyone thinks it's a ukulele because it's so small, but it's that, that one's too precious. I I need like a throwaway, but yeah, I don't know. I don't know if I'm going to bring it. 
Do you tend to name other objects? We're speaking about guitars. Yeah, yeah. I like to name everything. <laughs> I think it just makes things more special. <laughs> I named like my favorite tree in my neighborhood. You know, like I just like to. What were they called? Oh, there's a Jeremy. There's a Jeremy who's a willow. I re- <laughs> I just read this wiki how on like how to uh, become friends with a tree. And it was about like, uh, kind of like mixing your aura with it. And then I was like, this is hilarious. Let's go. Let's go. I'm, I'm so down for this. So I befriended this tree, Jeremy, who's a willow, which is my favorite type of tree. And that's really the one I only like go out to visit. Um, there's, there's other like groups of trees that, that I'll like be like, oh, that's like Jessica and Rebecca and whatever. Like, I don't want to. <laughs> Jeremy is like my homie. Like, yeah, but I, I, I think naming objects is so much fun because it just kind of gives them life. Yeah, it gives them life. It makes makes things even more hilarious. <laughs> Do you know how old Jeremy is? Oh gosh, I, I mean, I'd have to cut him open and count his rings. I guess. Oh, you know why I do that? <laughs> he seems pretty old. He seems very wise. You know. Did you have a car named Chloe as well? That is so funny. You got it. Um, well, I didn't name the car that name because that's actually the name of my sibling, Chloe, who's actually sitting not too far from me right now. Um, the car was named Chloe by uh, the person who was driving it because I've, I've never driven. I was on a little tour that was fall 2018. The call the car yeah the car was named Chloe. <laughs> it's like that's so that's so funny that you found that. How many siblings do you have? I have three. Three. I have three siblings. Yeah, and two they're all brothers and a sister. That's right. Yeah, they're amazing. I like them all. They're all great. Are they the people that are referenced? Uh, is it the start of Good Time? Yes, yeah. exactly. I love my mommy. I love my daddy. I love my. I don't know if I could call him out by name. And Liam might not have been born. Actually, I think he was. Um, but yeah, those are the those names. And that's that's my family. And I love myself. That's the key. I, the key phrase that, at the end of that. That is why I included it because it was like, what? Like I was like five or six or something, and I'm out here being like, I love myself. Like what? <laughs> that was crazy. That was. I didn't think I was so self-aware at such a young age. It's kind of radical. (laughs) Does it get harder to love ourselves as we get older, do you think, or easier? In my experience, when I look around at people, it seems like it's harder. At least, well, I don't know. People seem to get set in their ways and kind of accept who they are to a certain degree. I don't know if acceptance is love, though. I think it becomes easier as you get older because... You can laugh at yourself more and things seem less serious. You know, I remember when I was so, so caught up about my hair (laughs) and my acne and whatever, you know, then I grew a beard. (laughs) I don't got to worry about that anymore. and, And I really don't care anymore about like my hair looks crazy right now. It's, it's really big <laughs> and I don't care in a loving way, in a, in a way that's like, you know, it's okay. It's, it's like, it's so whatever. Like, I don't know. I was really, yeah, I guess I was concerned with looking the way that I thought I should look rather than just being like, 
all right, this is what I got, <laughs> you know, which is what I kind of grew into. I think people relate to that though. Like when it comes back to the, the idea of the whole kind of thing, you know, mm-hmm. when people mm-hmm. see you in videos and it's just you being yourself in that way. Yeah. Like, I don't think I really exude any kind of like sex appeal. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, I'm like not trying to either. You'll know when I'm trying. <laughs> but no, I'm, kidding. Um, I'm just trying to go more for like a wholesome, like, it's all right, y'all. It's okay. Just do whatever you want to do. <laughs> kind of vibe, you know? That's kind of like the end of the record as well. When exactly. You're just open in that way and you're vulnerable and it exactly. that you love yourself and that you need to be loved by other people. Exactly. Just being like, hey, this is what I need. I need other people to love me. I hope that's okay. <laughs> you know? This is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win, and support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.